Hear the word of the Lord from Acts 9, verses 1 through 22. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. We are in week 14 of our study through the book of Acts, the story of the most famous conversion to Christianity in all the Bible, from Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of Christians, to Paul, the apostle of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. It's a powerful story, and today there's another aspect of that original movement that made it so powerful, and that's this. Christianity converts people. Christianity transforms people's lives. That transformation is so significant, Jesus used an illustration to describe it to Nicodemus in John chapter three as being born all over again. It's that power to transform lives that is what makes true Christianity a force in the world today. 
But the problem is, we don't like that word convert, conversion. If you're here today with a friend and, and you're uh, not a follower of Jesus, you hear what may sound like one of those words that makes you leery of Christianity, the idea of conversion. What does that mean? It's scary, it feels archaic, it feels exclusive. For those of us that are Christians, we get more comfortable talking about a religion that we're a part of. I've joined this church, right? I've become a, a follower of Jesus. But when the Bible talks about that process of moving from a life that Jesus is not a part of to a life at which Jesus is the center, it's about a new life altogether. It's a true conversion. Paul says, the, the very man whose conversion we're going to look at today, says to the church at Corinth, if any person is in Christ, they're an entirely new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So before we dig into Acts chapter 9, I want you to hear from Paul himself, his description of that transformation that occurred that day, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to pick up at verse... Um, Halfway through verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, in human effort to uh, uh, attain uh, some relationship with God, if anyone thinks they have confidence in that, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law. I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. And as for legalistic righteousness, I was found faultless. This is the Saul that we are looking at today as he is on the road to Damascus. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews. As a Pharisee, he is one of those that had distilled the whole Old Testament law into 600 rules for life and legalistically and fervently applied those rules to himself. And that's why he's able to say, as to legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. This is that Saul. And then he goes on. Listen to the change. Verse 7, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them rubbish, that I may now gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing even in his sufferings, becoming like him even in death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Boy, that is a radical transformation from being a Christ hater to a Christ worshiper. Once Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, everything he had ever achieved in his life is worthless now compared to that surpassing joy, that surpassing value of knowing Christ. That, in a nutshell, is what the conversion that we speak of is all about. And it's so profound. It's like before it happened, we weren't living at all. Now, Paul goes on, when he's writing to Timothy, 
beginning at verse 15 of chapter one of 1 Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who will believe in him. So I want to pose that what we're going to study in terms of the conversion of Paul is not a template for conversion, for what we refer to as salvation, but it is a pattern, a model, that there are elements of this experience that are true of all of our conversions. The point here is not just to see the significance of it in the story, but to see the significance of it for you and me. Because here's the reality. Some of us have joined Christianity as a religion, and we've never been converted. You, you signed up for it. It sounded good, so you just joined in. But you haven't experienced that life change. So for you, it's an opportunity to look at your life and say, am I, am I religiously Christian or am I authentically, spiritually born anew? For others of you who uh, say, yes, I, I, I can echo the words of, of Paul looking back. I know when that change happened. And it was like waking up from a bad dream. The life I experienced when Christ came was like I had never lived before. Some of you understand that. And this is your opportunity to realize that what happened for you, God desires and intends to happen for all of us. So as we look now back at Acts chapter 9, we're going to ask three questions. Who needs it? How does it happen? And what changes take place? So let's begin. Who needs it? Well, the simple answer is everyone. Everyone needs this conversion experience. Now, how do we get that from this text? Well, it, it's in this sense. If you look at who Saul is, we see several important things about him. We see that he is morally faultless. He's a Pharisee. The point here is when we think about people who need to be converted, it's not good people that we think about. It's the down and out people. The people that have made bad choices that as a result are, are in desperate places, they need a new life. Saul helps us understand that even good people can never be good enough. Paul is morally faultless. He is also a deeply religious person. He has deeply religious faith. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He has a deep and profound faith. We live in a society that says to us, as long as you believe something and believe it with all your heart and it's meaningful to you, that's good enough. Christianity says it's not that you believe that matters, it's what you believe that matters. Two people go out on the ice. One person goes out on ice that's only two inches thick. And they say, I have belief that it'll hold me up. Another person's gonna go out on four or five inches of ice and they're, they're not sure if it's gonna hold them up, but they go out anyway. The person on the one or two inches of ice sinks. You see, it's not the faith that saves them, it's the ice. Great faith is meaningless if it's put in the wrong thing. And if Saul tells us anything, it's that. Here is a man of deep, profound faith. So profound, he sets everything apart and in pursuit of preserving that faith, he is destroying those that he believes threaten it. Convinced all along that he's in the right path. 
And in a few moments, he will find out that he's got it completely wrong. So here's a man who breaks all the molds of our idea of who needs to get their act together and have a new life. fact is, even very good people, and even people with a deep faith, need to be changed by Jesus Christ. Saul also represents another kind of person. He is an enemy of the gospel and of Jesus. If you want to read his own words about this period of his life, go to chapter 22, and then later on in chapter 26, when Paul tells his life story in two different occasions, and he says that I thought it was the right thing to do everything I could to put these people to death. I arrested them, I round them up, we brought them back to Jerusalem. I cast my vote for their death. I want you to understand this. Saul was the face of the first great persecution of Christianity. When you think about all those people who died, you have to lay them at Saul's feet, just like the original murderers of Stephen laid their cloaks at his feet. Make no mistake, Saul is a mass murderer of Christians. And that makes it that much harder for us to ponder this thought that Jesus would bother to go out of his way for this guy. Why would we? Here's the point. Sometimes those who seem most vehemently opposed to the gospel and to Jesus and those who live a life of greatest rebellion to the things of God, those that seem the farthest away that they could possibly be from the truth are often the ones that are the closest to salvation. Those that have fought the hardest often become the greatest warriors for the gospel. So that's who needs it. Everyone needs it. The enemies of God, the supposed friends of God, the religious and the irreligious, all alike need a transforming encounter with Jesus. Now, how does it happen? As we go through these next verses, what is going to be missing from here is what is necessary for someone to come to faith, and that's an explanation of the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God, by whose blood, as the true Lamb of God, it takes away the sins of the world, our sins are forgiven, we can come into fellowship with God, we become sons, daughters of God. There's no gospel sermon in this story. Remember, Saul has already heard the gospel. He was one of those at the Hellenistic synagogues that debated so aggressively with Philip who preached the gospel powerfully. Many were coming to faith. Saul knew the gospel. He had already rejected it. So presume that that knowledge is here and then look at some of the important dynamics that have to surround that in order for that to translate into a conversion, a life-changing experience. Saul, this persecutor of the church, having gotten permission and documents that would allow him to go to Damascus now and extend the persecution to foreign cities. And this is where he encounters Christ. Let's read it again, verses 3 and 4. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? 
Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I want to just glean some important elements to a conversion experience that we see here. And the first one is that God initiates. Jesus reaches out to Saul to get his attention. You know, most of us think of our journey to Christ as our search and our choice. But once we become children of God, we recognize that all along, God was reaching out to us. In fact, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. So one of the first things we see about a conversion experience is that God's in it from the beginning. In chapter 26, when Paul is telling this story to King Agrippa, he tells a little more detail. Besides Jesus saying to him, why are you persecuting me? He says to him, it is hard to kick against the goads. A common expression for the Greeks that basically meant it's futile to resist. The goad was a sharp pointed stick that they used to prod oxen along. And sometimes ornery oxen would kick against the goad. And the problem was they only hurt themselves. Eventually, they were going to submit. That's what Jesus is saying to him. Let me give you an update to that, paraphrase that. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. (laughs) You see, God initiates. It's hard for us because we are so personally centered. We want credit, and we don't understand all the implications of how God is active, and that when he calls, he does redeem us. But the Bible teaches that truth, even as it teaches whosoever will may come. Often, as Christians, over the last 2,000 years, we've divided over those two principles, the sovereignty of God in calling men and women to himself and the free will of man as though it has to be one or the other. And the reality is that is a Western mindset. That comes out of the Enlightenment, the Socratic logic system that basically says if two statements appear to be contradictory, only one can be true, or one must win over the other. But you see, Scripture wasn't written post-Enlightenment. It wasn't written in the Western world. Scripture is Hebrew, it's Eastern in thinking. God exists as three persons and yet he's one. Explain that logically. Jesus is both fully God and fully man, Scripture says. Explain that logically. They're God's logic system and God says, my ways are far above your ways, my thoughts far above yours. See, it is both true, because Scripture says it, that God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And it's not God's desire that any should perish but that all should come to salvation. And so whosoever calls on the Lord will be saved. But it's also true that those that God before creation was in relationship with, that's what foreknowledge means, Paul says in the book of Romans, those he predestined and he chose and he called and he justified So salvation is God's from first to last. They are both true. It's humbling for us because it reminds us that so much of the working of God is a mystery. And it is much about faith. 
But trust me, when you came to Christ, yeah, you figured it out, didn't you? But the only way that happened was that a light shone in your spirit just like it shone on the Damascus Road. And Jesus let you see him. And once he did, like Saul, you had one choice. Lord. I got into that a little longer than I planned on. A little teachable moment. God initiates. Second, how conversion happens. It's an individual experience. As we go on here, verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anything. We know for a fact that the light was Jesus himself because Paul says that later on. Jesus revealed himself to him there. But the men didn't see that, and what they heard was just noise. This experience of transformation was Saul's alone, as it is for all of us. There was no such thing as spirituality by osmosis. You can't say, well, how are you a Christian? Well, my parents were Christians. My grandparents were Christians. We've always been Christians. Now, you don't inherit conversion. You have to personally be transformed by the work of Jesus Christ, just like Saul. The third thing is that it does require an acknowledgement, an understanding of who Jesus is. It's interesting. He knows he's encountering the divine. And so his immediate response is, Who are you, Lord? So before he even confirms that it's Jesus, he's already surrendered to him. Who are you, Lord? And then the response, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We are his body on earth. So we are Jesus. Secondly, Jesus said, did he not, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you've done to me. So Jesus was quite accurate when he said to Saul, you're killing all these followers, but you're persecuting me. It's me you're persecuting. So Saul had to surrender to the reality that the Lord that he was encountering on that road was the very Jesus that until that moment he had rebelled against and from this moment on would be his Lord. The fourth thing that we see about conversion is that it implies a change of authority. Paul goes from being full of his own authority and in complete control of not only his life, but thousands of other lives, to having no control at all, (laughs) utterly powerless, and having to obey completely the instructions of Jesus. Think about this. Saul, the arrester of Christians, was arrested by Christ. Part of real conversion is a surrendering to the authority of God. It's why I think how we instruct people to come to faith falls short. Because we say to them, well, all you have to do is acknowledge these ideas. You've done bad things. Those bad things separate you from God. And Jesus died. And you know, he'll come in and give you new life. And And so based on a profession of these things, we say, well, you've been converted. Well, no. We've acknowledged something is true that Scripture says even the demons believe and tremble at. What makes it real in our life? Paul says it. If you confess Jesus as Lord, 
and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To confess Jesus as Lord is not just a doctrinal reality, it's a life reality. He is now in charge of my life. He has complete control. The easiest thing to surrender control to Jesus is when our life is completely out of control. We recognize that we need someone else to take over. That's the easiest point of conversion of all. But most of us don't come to him out of that. It's sort of a trial relationship. We give him some things. We maintain control. Where's conversion in that? If you want to acquire God's forgiveness but maintain the authority of your life, your finances, your choices, your moral decisions in life, then you have not come to Jesus. Saul reminds us of that in very dramatic form. It is an exchange of authority. Now some would argue, well, isn't that adding to faith? Isn't salvation by grace alone through faith? Well, of course it is. Of course it is. I can't do any of this except by faith. But by faith, I am both acknowledging Jesus as Savior, but also as Lord. It's why Paul would say, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I think those are some very real elements to what occurs when we encounter Jesus authentically and our life is truly transformed. And I think it's worth our wrestling with that a little bit, thinking through it and asking ourselves, have I truly surrendered to Christ in this way? Imagine the change that could occur for you. I remember um, at my last church, there was a a man who became a good friend of mine, and uh, he would come faithfully. And because he was already attending the church when when I first got there, I didn't recognize him as any different than anybody else who had already been attending the church. Brought his Bible, had a pretty big one. And then we started meeting for lunch and he began pouring out his life and his life wasn't going very well and it was clear to me that he didn't really understand a lot about the Christian life. He'd never been discipled. But over time, when we got down to really talking about the gospel and what it means to surrender to Jesus, it became clear he had never made that decision. He'd showed up to church. He saw all these people doing all these things. He bought a Bible. He began learning about what the Bible says to follow Jesus. He attended the fellowship events, came to all these different things. He was so close, but yet he was so far. We went back to my office, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Changed him. It transformed him. So what changes? Well, I want to just suggest three things that we can see that are part of the change in Saul. And the first is that we become part of a new community. Saul is immediately enfolded, albeit reluctantly, albeit it took a vision of God to convince people to enfold him. He's immediately enfolded, and three particular individuals play a very important role in Saul's life at this point. It's interesting that Saul is staying in the home of a man named Judas, and the man that comes to minister to him is named Ananias. Do those names sound familiar? Judas, the great betrayer of Christ before the cross, and Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, were killed early on in the book of Acts because they were deceiving and robbing God and and threatening his community of faith. 
I can't say for sure, but doesn't it sound just like the Holy Spirit to now use a man named Judas and a man named Ananias to enfold the former persecutor of the church? I love that. And, and I also love the fact that Judas lives on straight street. <laughs> Saul finds the straight and narrow in the home of Judas. It's just funny, just really funny. Ananias comes and enfolds him. Ananias knows who he is. But he comes and he offers him grace. He baptizes him. And he calls him Brother Saul. And the third person, who we'll see at the end of this chapter, but who plays a very pivotal role later on in our story, of course, is Barnabas, who we saw early on in the same story of Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas becomes the one that virtually sponsors him in Jerusalem, that mentors him. And when there's a need for someone with a certain set of gifts, almost a decade later, thinks of him and gets him and involves him in ministry and becomes his partner in the cause. It's powerful. Becomes part of a new community. Second, he receives a new cause or a new purpose. Verses 17 and following, actually uh, 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now back in chapter one, Jesus gave essentially a prediction of how the gospel was gonna transform the world. Jerusalem first, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And we have watched it first of all come to Jerusalem, and then through the first persecution, go to Judea and all Samaria. We saw that the last two weeks. And what we're seeing today is God calling out the primary individual who will be his tool to bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. And we will see in weeks ahead why Saul, as it turns out, has been preparing for this his whole life and didn't even know it. But God all along was preparing Saul, and he, in fact, is the perfect one to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. It becomes the great theologian that puts it on paper in a way that we can embrace it and teach it today. Brings it to Gentiles, to kings, and ultimately to emperors. What a great purpose. And we all inherit that very purpose. We're all part of that cause. We all become part of a new community and gain this new, eternal, glorious purpose, expanding the movement of God. And then finally, he receives a brand new life, right? Verse 17, Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his uh, strength. So here we see a dying to his old ways and being resurrected to a new way, right? He receives new sight, and of course, the physical sight is symbolic of a great spiritual sight that now has been given him because he's received the Holy Spirit. He's healed, he's forgiven, he receives the Holy Spirit, and like all of us are to be, he's baptized in order to symbolize that he has left his old life behind 
and has been birthed into this new life in Jesus Christ. All of us should see that in our life, our universal need for this, how God comes to us and opens our heart to him so that we see what otherwise in our humanness and our selfishness we would never see about him and about ourselves. We see him for who he is as our savior and as our Lord and we humbly surrender ourselves to those truths. And as a result, we're birthed into the body of Christ. We're part of a new community. We're given this eternal purpose and we have a new life so powerful so glorious that it's as though we had never lived before. That's what happens to Saul. And it's meant to happen to us. You know, we look at this and we see a man who, understandably, the early church, the apostles were very leery of. I'll pick up that part of it next week. But we see him as somewhat of an exception to the rule. I mean, after all, he was a mass murderer, wasn't he? He was a great rebel against God. He was the enemy of God. And even though I can look at Saul's life and see some things that are similar, what God saved me from is nothing like what God saved Saul from. I was never so dark, was I? We look at Saul and we see him as the darkest of the dark, morally. And we see ourselves a little farther up the curve. But scripture sees us all on the same plane. In reality, we are all of us, all of us, enemies of God until we're conquered by Christ. We don't think of it that way. Just like Saul, he thought he was doing God's work. We're going along, we think we're doing the right thing, and we encounter the real Christ, and we realize that all along, everything about us has been opposing him. We have been enemies of God in our minds and in our hearts. And that's what makes the conversion to this new life, sons and daughters of God, so marvelous. Let's say this verse together from Colossians chapter one. Once you were alienated from God, enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Paul said that. He knows it was true about him. But because of God's call on his life and that great transformation in him, you and I today, we know it's true about us too. We are the legacy of Saul of Tarsus who became Paul Apostle of the Gentile world. Thank God. Thank God he changes life that way and uses us. And that's what we remember today as we come to the Lord's table. That it was through this work of Christ, this great suffering, that he calls us to that one path to true meaning and true joy and true service and new life. So let's just pray and prepare ourselves for communion.